Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. As we do every week, we have a brand new guest on the show talking about their life and journey through the world of martial arts. My guest today is a lifelong martial artist with black belts in multiple styles. He got fed up with martial arts supply gear and decided he just found his own martial arts supply company. He's also hosts a critically acclaimed podcast. I'd like to welcome to the show today, Jeremy Lesniak. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great, Brian. How are you? Thanks I'm for having good. me on. It's it's. It's a little early. <laughs> normally, normally we're recording at about what eight in the morning, my time. I think it's nine your time. And, it's nine here. Yeah, yeah. I know, I, I've I, been up for hours. We we do a morning show. I I, oh, I roll out right. of bed and and start running at six thirty. Nice. See, I, I gotta get. I normally on a on a good week, I usually get up at four thirty, go to the gym before I go to work and stuff. But it's yeah. it was a day off, so I'm like I'm gonna sleep in. But then you, I'm like, hey, that's it. That's the time he can do it. I'll do it. So I've done about well, I I've that. done about three this early. But I know as a professional voiceover artist, I know what time my money voice is. That's a mm. term. A lot of voiceovers. My money voice is like ten a.m. to two p.m. <laughs> but that's also hard for me to record during that time frame. So yeah, it's all yeah, good. And- do you have to balance money voice with money brain? <laughs> yeah, that's about it. <laughs> because for me, the two are, are separate, right? Like I'm, you know, once once the coffee kicks in, that's where I'm my most alert. But yeah, the, the voice thing doesn't really start to kick in until late morning. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I have like for, I mean, getting way off topic, but for voice arrives, a lot of clients who are overseas that want me mm. to record, like I've had to record at three, four in the morning before. And I'm just, I'm warning them. I'm just saying, no, you're going to get my Jack Nicholson voice if you want to record that early. <laughs> and it's like, good morning, boys and girls. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, before I have you know, breakfast or a protein shake or something, a little scratchy, but it works out. So. <laughs> Hey, you do what you got to do, right? <laughs> That's right. But like we do with all my guests, uh, we like to jump into the beginning. I'd like to know that what led to that first spark, that first interest in martial arts and, and kind of how your martial arts journey began. Yeah. So my story is is so early in my chronology that it wasn't even really my decision. Okay. I was four. I had just turned four. I was at the public beach. I don't even remember most of this story. This is a story that I've heard primarily from my mother and to a lesser degree, uh, one of my original instructors. We were at the beach and my mother calls me out of the water. And what's really funny about this is we rarely went to this beach because it was, there are a lot of people there. And my mother preferred this other beach that had far fewer people, but we're at the town beach and she calls me out of the water and, and brings me over and says, this is Beth. She's going to start teaching karate. Do you want to learn karate? I'm like, okay, I'm four. I, I don't, I don't know anything <laughs> at that point. There's, there's no, there's no Ninja Turtles. We didn't grow up. I didn't grow up watching, you know, Kung Fu TV. I lived in the woods in Maine. We didn't go to the movie. So I had absolutely no frame of reference for what martial arts was, but the way she presented it to me, you know, you, you can get a kid to agree to anything. If you bring your voice up at the end, Hey, do you want me to hit you in the head with a hammer? Yeah. Sounds fun. Right. So <laughs> yep. that was kind of the tone. And so I agreed. And so September 83, I was four years old on the floor. And, and what I have heard my instructors, my original instructors say since then is after you, we didn't take anybody under six. Oh, wow. Did you remember what style of karate it was? Yeah. So uh, it, it was, it's a married couple. I'm still in touch with them. I still oh. train with them. They're, wow. they're absolutely wonderful, wonderful people. John grew up in Ishinru karate and Beth grew up in Kyokushinkai and with some, some Goju influence. Very cool. And so I got this mishmash as well as These two being, in my mind, very much ahead of the times in terms of openness to cross-training. We would have people come visit the dojo, and it didn't matter if you were like a blue belt in something else. Be like, what can you show us? 
what can we learn from you? Do you have, do you have a form? Do you have a kata that we can learn? And it was just this very Borg mentality. Let's just grab everything we can because it's fun and it's new and it's different. And some of it will stick and make sense. Okay. That's actually, yeah. I've told the story a few times, like, you know, my, my, not my first instructor, but my first instructor as an adult, he was just, he, he forbid cross training. He tried to forbid cross training. Yeah. And I've, you know, <laughs> I don't hear it that often. I thought it was a normal thing. And the more and more guests I talked to, they're like, no, my instructor was open about it and they invited it and invited other instructors in from other schools. So <laughs> I was, I was in a, the minority, I guess, when I first thought I was in the majority. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I possibly, but you know what I think it is more, I think that especially in the early 80s, we had a lot of that legacy stuff from 60s, 70s. You know, it, information didn't spread as quickly then. And so you still had a lot of that dojo battle culture that kind of went on. You know, if somebody stepped into your school in the 60s or so, they tell me, you know, they weren't so much there to learn if they're coming from another school. They're there to test themselves or to potentially steal students, right? So there was a lot of this cynicism that came up. But what I think happened is those of us that came up in the 80s, if we had instructors who were open to cross-training, they were probably better instructors. And we're probably more likely to still be training now because we had better instructors. Okay. That's my theory. That's a good theory to have, I think. That makes sense. So do you remember how long did you stay at that first school? Until I went to college. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, I was there from four to 18 and uh, trained a little bit when I came back. From college, you know, that that summer mm-hmm. uh, between freshman and sophomore year was the only time I grew up in Maine, went yeah. to college in Massachusetts. And so that summer when I went back to Maine was really the only time that I was there for anything extended after I graduated high school. So I was training there that summer, not every day because I was working, you know, I was working in a restaurant, worked mm-hmm. quite a few nights, but kept training until pretty much uh, what's what's call it the end there and started training with some some clubs on campus and okay. mixing it up. Well, I definitely want to talk about the stuff on campus, but back up just a little bit. When you when sure. you got to the age where you could have made your own decision, what what at that point, what why did you decide to stick with it? I know you said you were kind of forced into it as a four year old. What made you want to stick with it when you were old enough to decide that? You know, it's it's such an interesting question because it wasn't always good, right? If, if you do anything long enough, you're going to have bad days. And so stack on top of that, the challenges of being a teenager and the social dynamics. And, you know, here I am, I'm trying to find my own way in school as arguably the nerdiest kid in school. I mean, if, if you were if you were to ask people back, back then in high school, hey, who's the nerdiest kid in school? I was definitely top three out of 700 kids. <laughs> Nice. Probably number one to most of them. I was top five easily. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So we're, we're in good company. Yep. Mar- martial arts seems to attract some misfits, uh, at least youthful misfits, which I, I really appreciate. Agreed. But when it came down to it, martial arts was the only thing beyond academics where I felt I had, um, I had some control and some skill. I was competing in competitions and, uh, doing well versus, you know, high school sports where mm-hmm. I was struggling to get enough acknowledgement to, to come off the bench. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't on the bench playing soccer because I wasn't any good. I was on the bench playing soccer because none of the kids liked me enough to pass me the dang ball. Okay. So martial arts became the thing that I could lean on and say, this is mine. So through those bad days, you know, there, there were days I wanted to quit. Because I had a bad day, you know, you're, you're a kid, you're a teenager. Anybody who remembers ado- adolescence knows, you know, sometimes days didn't go well for absolutely no reason other than, you know, hormones aren't working properly that day as your body matures. But my mother really, and, and I, I, I thank her for this, didn't let me quit. She, she's, you know, we, we, we got to stick this out. You know, if you still feel this way on Monday, you know, okay. So she, she had the good sense to not let me make knee-jerk reactions. And once I got to 16, 17 years old, yeah, I was the nerdiest kid in school, but I was also someone that even though they picked on for my martial arts skill, they'd all seen my picture in the paper enough Mm -hmm. that they said, "Mm, maybe we're not going to actually test him. (laughs) That makes sense. See, and me, mine was a little different where I, I, I kind of kept mine a secret. Like a Mm. lot, a lot of my friends didn't know. I mean, other than the ones that were in class, because I, I thought I'd get picked on more if they knew I was in martial arts. So, you know, I talk about it, and, uh, like at class reunions and friends are like, you, you did martial arts back then? 
<laughs> until I got to college, you know, and I actually showed up one time back home in a martial arts T-shirt. I was like, oh, you started this? I'm like, yeah, I've been doing it for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, yeah, kind of a little little different there. Now, you mentioned competition. So what what drew you to competition, and, and what, what uh, aspects did you compete in? Competition, when I, the first time I competed, there were probably like three tournaments through the year, maybe four in Maine. This is this is the early to mid 80s. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a photo, I think the oldest martial arts photo of me. Um, we've got it narrowed down to one of two tournaments. And I think I'm six. You know, I think I just earned my yellow belt. Okay. And did a couple in there. But, you know, getting a six year old to really dial in and, and, and practice for competition like that that wasn't a thing that worked well so it kind of went on hold until i think i was probably 13 or 14 and i i don't know why it started then but i know why it continued and it's because it was an extension of me finding my place okay so martial arts was the thing i was skilled at and here's the validation that let's face it every teenager is looking for something to point to and say ah i'm good at something and that's where I think competition fell in for me. I was competing in in forms and weapons and fighting. Those were the three core things okay. that happened in these tournaments that were around me. And, you know, I, I started competing heavily as a brown belt, uh, earned my black belt and remained competitive in, in that sphere. You know, I was under 18. So mm-hmm. and really found that I loved forms. You know, it took me some time to, to find my way there. But once I did. I did really well. And, you know, sparring, you know, I did okay because I had plenty of practice, but it wasn't, it wasn't my jam, right? Like sparring was fun, but it got to a point and, and, and I don't want to be immodest in this because I think the mindset led to the results, not the other way. But when, when I stepped into a tournament, I, I knew I had my forms division sewn up and wow. I was pretty darn sure where I had my weapons sewn up and the sparring I was like, ah, let's see how today goes. Right. But I, I and, and I've said this even since when I step out on the floor, cause I, I compete, you know, once a decade now, mm-hmm. when I step out on the floor, that's my floor for that, for those 90 seconds, two minutes, like that's my floor. And back then that was so important to me, not so much the result, but the fact that I had an opportunity to do my best with the attention of those around me. And it was up to me. Very cool. And I liked that. Yeah. So what was your weapon of choice in competition? Ah, initially it was bow, but everybody else was doing bow. (laughs) Yep. And it was really hard to stand out because this is the mid nineties where there was a lot of, um, there was a, there was a big shift at least in, in the new England area. You had a lot of shift from traditional into acrobatic stuff. And I know that stuff had been happening prior, but it really seemed to go fast at that point, you know, from, from 94 to 96, it just was like, whoa, you know, we went from traditional stuff winning to big, flashy, screamy, shiny bow. And, and my mother was my coach and, and, you know, for, for good and for bad. And I remember sitting down one day and and we talked about it, you know, it's going to be really hard to be better at bow than these kids who have been training bow competitively for 10 years. Right. You know, I, I'd use bow, but wasn't great with it. So we looked at what, what is no one doing? And the answer was Sai. And in part Sai was because, you know, I was a huge Ninja Turtles fan. You know, I loved Raphael. So it's like, you know, I, I, I had a pair of Sai and we just kind of jumped into that. And I don't remember the results, but I know early on it went well enough that it was like, all right, let's, let's do this. And after a few years of, of doing, doing well, I wanted a, a change. And so stepped in and, and did a, um, did a sword form, oh. you know, and, and, and really, and learned that that was my, my, my final year on the circuit. Okay. Uh, that was, that was the big thing that I, i shifted. So did you ever do any of the, the NASCA tournaments or was it a different, different out there? The clo- at the time, I think the closest NASCA tournaments were Southern New England. Okay. And, you know, I went, you know, honestly, I'm trying to remember. There were a couple of tournaments in Connecticut and Rhode Island that may or may not have been on the NASCA circuit at the time. Okay. I've, just, I've, I've interviewed a few NASCA people, so I was just kind of curious. You might, you might have crossed paths with them back then because they were both youth competitors uh, probably mm. in, the, in the mid-90s, so. And, and did mostly like the, well, I think one did very traditional form. The other one did like the musical form. So art- yep. artistic, but yeah, it's de- definitely, I, I do appreciate the tournaments where they separate those two. <laughs> or yes. And, and the, the, circuit, yeah. the circuit that I was on, it was, 
you would see music in grants, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't, there, there were rarely musical divisions at the tournaments I was going to. Oh, okay. Some of the bigger ones had them, but that wasn't, you know, the only time I pulled out music was for grants. Nice. Yeah. My first time seeing a musical one, I was watching a friend compete and we stayed for the grand championships and I think it was 91 or 92 at a big, uh, the diamond nationals in Bloomington, yeah. Minnesota. Yeah. And ended up going down and watching those like seven years in a row, which is where I've met a few of my guests now, which is kind of nice. nice. But, yeah. Now, of course you mentioned uh, trained there through high school and then went to college. What are some of the st- styles you got involved in in college? My freshman year, I didn't have a car. And the only thing that was on campus was this karate club. I went to Clark Worcester mass and we had a karate club on campus. I was like, all right, let's see what's going on here. And it was okay. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to name the style uh, because it, it wouldn't take long to track down. It's kind of a Shotokan derivative. Okay. And some of the people that were involved were great. Um, not all of them were. And I knew that it was filler. I just wanted to train, even though it wasn't where I wanted to be because where I wanted to be required a car. Right. And I did that through my sophomore year, close to the end of my sophomore year. And, you know, I, I was, everybody assumed I was going to take over as president of the club. And, and there had been a couple winter clubs starting on, on campus. And I was doing that too. And then I got a car and I was like, uh, sorry guys, there's something way better over there. <laughs> and I'm going to go there. Even though the, the reason I went to this school was academic. Mm-hmm. There was a martial arts school run by someone that I had met competing who I absolutely loved. And I said, you know, if I go here, I can train with him. And so I, I had the good fortune to train with now Shihan Wayne Mello, uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful man, wonderful instructor, wonderful competitor uh, in, in Worcester and spent two years hanging out with him and, and did Capoeira through those last two years and just had a blast. That's so you, uh... I've, you're the first person I've actually talked to in person that studied capoeira. Well, second person, but that was a completely different situation. But <laughs> no, I, that's, I mean, you obviously have to be not just athletic, but acrobatic to do that style. That well, Talk a little bit about capoeira. That's, that's a style that I always, ever since seeing the movie Only the Strong with yeah, Mark Costcos. Well, technically the first time I saw it, if you remember, you're, you're a kid from the 80s too. Do you remember? The Quest. Well, do you remember Rooftops? No. Oh my God. Jason Gedrick yeah. from Iron Eagle. <laughs> I've never even heard of this movie. Go I find the movie. Find this well, so okay. in the movie, I have to go back. I haven't watched it in probably 30 years, but it's a cheesy 80s movie about about these kids who do combat dancing on rooftops in the city. <laughs> I don't even remember if they use the term capoeira. But yeah, it's <laughs> that oh, was the first trip. time I saw it. And then when I when when Only the Strong came out, I'm like, ooh, ooh that's like rooftops. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. and there, there are only like two scenes in that movie where there's actual capoeira, which, exactly. which frustrated me. Yeah. You know, so just talk a little bit about that style because it's it's always just uh, it's I just think it's a beautiful style. My my philosophy for martial arts, you know, like like we said towards the top, I've always been encouraged to try new things and cross train. And not that we even use those terms. It was just if you have the opportunity to train with somebody who does something different, try it. You never know what you're going to learn, what you're going to bring in. And when I started doing Cavalero, what I loved about it was that I could take a lot of what I knew, but yet it was still so different that it was really challenging. And I had a pretty good instructor. I was really happy with the instructor. He was from Brazil and lived outside of Boston and had a student who had come up through his program that was going to college with us. And so he encouraged him to come out and he was making the trek. I think it was once a week. And, you know, so that, that club actually grew quite a bit and it was a lot of fun. So the, the, the movement I think is what really appealed to me. You know, I came up in a Okinawan mindset, you know, very, if you weren't moving, you were still, you know, it was very rigid. Whereas Cabrera is the exact opposite. You are in constant motion. And some of that had some synergy with combat for me, but more so I, I just enjoyed the activity of it. Not, not just going to class and being around people, but the fact that it was constant movement and the fact that you had to adjust on the fly in the way that you would in, in any kind of freeform drill, whether sparring, self-defense, whatever with someone else, but you had to account for their constant motion as well as your constant motion. Whereas if you, if you think about, if you watch most people, let's say spar, mm-hmm. they're still until they figure out what they're doing and then they move. Better fighters, of course, aren't, but most people will just kind of stay in place. And it's like, now I'm going to do this. And then they stop. And so it was, it was mentally challenging as well as physically. 
Wow. That's, and you said to the person who ran it, you, you knew from competitions. So that's one thing I've never seen capoeira in a competition. Not, thing. not capoeira. Uh, oh. that was, that was the Shotokan school oh, that I was okay. training at okay. at the same time. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I, I've, uh, strangely <laughs> enough, uh, the only time I've, <laughs> here's a fun story. The, the Shotokan instructor, uh, Shion Mello had a tournament that I had been to a number of times in, in Worcester, in the same town at one of the colleges, Worcester mm-hmm. has like 15 schools. And I was there refereeing for him, probably my junior year. And I'm in a corner, I'm in a, a chair, I'm a corner ref. And there was a capoeira person and something didn't go well. The head, the head instructor didn't like something going on. I don't remember all the details, but somebody with him was causing a ruckus on the sidelines. And so he makes eye contact with me and he's yelling at me. I'm like, I I have nothing to do with this. And I, in my mind at the time, very nicely encouraged him, come talk to me. Instead of yelling at me, come talk to me. That was perceived as a challenge, which was not meant to be a challenge. It was, no, just instead of yelling at me, come talk to me and let's see if we can find. And and because he was, uh, let's say, hot under the collar at the time, it was, oh, you want to go outside? I'm like, no, (laughs) no, I don't. Not at all. I want to stay here in my chair. Wow. And I felt very safe. There were dozens of people in that room that I knew very well that would have my back. Right. But it was just so funny that it, it, it went so quickly from from one end to the other. That's hilarious. That's actually great. So then during college, any more styles while you were in college or mainly those two? No, no, it was, it was those three, those three schools. And, and it was, it was great. Had a lot of fun, met a lot of great people. Uh, How about after after college, any, any new styles after that? So after college, college brought me to Vermont where where I remain today and had a, a big decision to make, you know, do I, do I train with somebody else? And started looking around, or is it time that I put my own shingle out? Is it time I opened my own school? Mm -hmm. And looked around at what was available. And at the time, none of it resonated with me. That has since changed. And there's some some irony in there. We'll we'll throw some foreshadowing at it if you want. Uh, So I started my own school. Okay. And I started my own school. At the same time, I was starting my own IT consultancy. Oh. Because I'm insane. (laughs) And ran that school for two years, uh, got some students up to Blue Belt, had a lot of fun, learned a ton. Oh, man, I learned more in those two years of teaching mm-hmm. than I did in my prior years combined. At that point, would have been you know 18 years of training. And realized that my day job was getting the best of me. Right. And I was exhausted and I was stepping into class and my students weren't getting the best. They were getting a, a pretty poor version of me and I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle not giving them the best version of myself. And so we shut down the school. It's oh, too bad. It was really hard. Yeah. That's something you always hate, especially when it's something you built yourself. You always hate to, yeah. to close the doors on that. So, yeah. Okay. And kind of meandered for a little bit after that, you know, trained on my own and said, you know, I, I got to do something. And there was a Taekwondo school in town. And I said, Let's check this out. And I went and met an absolutely wonderful man who had grown up in Shorin Rue and was now teaching Taekwondo with kind of similar reasons that mm-hmm. I ended up in, in Taekwondo because that's what was around and he wanted to keep training. And we hit it off and uh, trained actively there for, I, I, it's hard to say because it faded as I, as I moved further and further away from the right. school, but trained actively for, let's call it a decade. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you remember which uh, system of Taekwondo that was? ITF. Oh, okay. Cool. Was that like uh, part of the Junri system or? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Junri would have come through ITF if I'm remembering my history correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you, ever, you ever read uh, A Killing Art? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've actually rec- <laughs> recommended that to anyone oh, who's ever such, studied Taekwondo. Such a good, such a good book. Very I had, good the, book. had the good fortune to, to talk with both Alex Gillis and um, was incredibly fortunate Junri came on our show oh wow at one point okay. uh, but yeah you want to you want to feel bad about training taekwondo read that book <laughs> that was hard alex and i had a couple conversations after the fact because it just it was tough it was tough so anybody who's read the book is nodding along anybody who's not <laughs> read the book is going, what the heck are you talking about it's there's <laughs> yep. some there's some intensity to that history it's it's come up on at least six episodes i think i've, I've mentioned I that name it. and recommended it to people so it's, a, it's and my my taekwondo instructor recommended it to me so and i read it in a, in a weekend so <laughs> mm. it's a good book it's a good book 
Nice. All right. So then you about a decade and any yeah. other systems or schools after that? What happened after that? Uh, so one of the things that catalyzed me, I, I don't want to say stepping away or moving away because th- that implies it was active and it wasn't. It just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. I live 45 minutes away oh, wow. from that school now. And even my instructor, he, he, he said this one day and, and I don't know if I fully agree with it, but he said, you know, I've taught you everything I can. And I, I still love him dearly. He's still one of the best people. And he's, he is the best instructor I've ever seen with children. I have utmost respect for him. But I started looking around, you know, what, what's next? And one of the things that happened was early on in the history of our show, I was blessed to meet Bill Wallace. Oh, nice. And part of that was through hosting Bill Wallace for a seminar, you know, through our brand, through Whistlekick. And I was running the event, so I didn't get to train. And I reached out, his senior student, Terry, lives in Manchester, New Hampshire, so about two hours away. And I reached out and I said, hey, Terry, um, can I come down for like an hour? Can you just show me the fundamentals? Because I... uh I didn't get to train and I'm kind of bummed about that. And he's like, yeah, come on now. So I went down and hung out and we did some stuff. And he's like, hey, your uh, your kicks are pretty good. And I was like, cool, thanks. He's like, what would you say to testing under Bill? And, and, and uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, does somebody say no to this? I, I'm, not, I'm not really <laughs> sure what, what I'm supposed to say here. It seems like a, a foregone conclusion. And yeah. So, okay, well, we got to get you ready. We'll, we'll do it. Um, you know, let's do it in April. And I think at that time it's like November. Mm-hmm. So I went down, you know, we scheduled every like three, four weeks. I went down and did a couple hours private lesson, trained on my own. And a couple sessions later, he says, you know, I'm sure he's going to pass you every time or rather I'm sure he'll pass you. We get together as black belts in the organization once a year to train together. It's in Florida. Do you want to go? And I'm like, uh, yes. Like, again, am I supposed to say no to, to these opportunities? Like, this is ridiculous. Uh, so here we are, it's March and, and I'm in Tampa with Bill Wallace and all of his black belts. And I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. And, and, and we're training, we're doing our thing. Now I had never really done any kickboxing. I'd never done any continuous sparring mm-hmm. beyond the safety of the schools that I trained in. Right. And when I competed, remember I competed as a kid. So contact rules were a little bit different. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. used to it. And I end up with this guy. And if, if anybody's listening, who is part of this organization, you're going to know exactly who I'm talking about with zero description. And he, he was kind of a bully. He kind of liked beating up the new guys and we're sparring and he's not hitting me that hard, but he's just taking me to task, you know? So here I am and I've been training for, you know, oh, I missed the part where I did BJJ for like three months. Okay. There was no bowing and, and I missed that. I missed the formality. So we don't have to dig into that, <laughs> but here I am and I'm, I'm getting my butt kicked. And after that round, you know, I, I oh, I got to go to the bathroom and I went in the bathroom and I sobbed. Oh, wow. I cried. Here I am. I mean, this was this was five years ago. I'm in my mid 30s and I'm crying because I felt like everything I had learned was in, in that moment. I felt like it was a lie and it really changed the way I approach training and, and, and martial arts. Now, this is the point where some people are listening and they're going to say, oh, you know, Jeremy became more focused on self-defense and reality-based stuff and, and, and did away with all this traditional training that doesn't work. And that, no, that's not it. What it changed for me was my realization that the reason we all train can be really different. Most of the guys training in the Superfoot organization like mixing it up. They like going hard. Mm-hmm. I don't. I still don't. Most of the guys have done full contact kickboxing matches. You know, some of them have earned belts and I don't mean rank belts. I mean, title belts and they've done amazing things. I have never had any desire for that. Okay. But what it allowed me to do was see, oh, here's a hole. Here's a hole in my training. And now I get the option to choose to address it. And I did. And I, and I continue to. So up until the pandemic, because, you know, pandemic changed everyone's lives. Mm -hmm. I was training in Superfoot kickboxing. There was a Kempo school that a friend of mine was running in, let's call it Northern Vermont, um, about a half hour, 45 minutes north. And I was training with those guys once a week. And my original instructors started teaching again. So I was making, you know, monthly trips to Maine to, you know, three and a half hours, four hours each way. So I had all three of these things going on and I was loving life. Oh, it was the best. Nice. That's actually, you'll have to, when we're done recording, I'll have to tell you my Bill Wallace story. 
you'll okay. you'll appreciate you'll appreciate it, and I think you'll love it. <laughs> and, and I will tell you the one that I cannot tell publicly. Yeah. Well, see, I could tell this one publicly, but he's another one who I'm hoping to get on the show because I want to tell it to him on the show. Mm. I think he would love it. I'm sure he'd remember it too. But it's about the first. He time remembers everyone. It's oh, bizarre. Then he will because it's he it's, it's, he remembers everyone and everything. He remembers. You can ask him details about any of his fights. Wow. He'll tell you everything. Wow. He could tell you, he might even with some of them be able to go blow by blow wow. per round. He, his memory is remarkable. That's, yeah, I've, I've only got to meet him once, but like I said, it's everyone I've told the story to has laughed their ass off. So <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to telling you. But uh, so let's shift gears a little bit. Now, sure. back up, I think it was 2010, if I remember reading it correctly. Talk about whistle kick martial arts gear and, and, yeah. and the kind of the story behind that and how it came about. I got sick of buying gear that after a month started falling apart. Mm. And that's really what it was. You know, I, I've been training a long time. And, and, you know, early on, I was probably six, seven years old when we started using gear in the dojo. And it's like, okay, you know, you buy your gear and, you know, you have it for a few years and it starts to fall apart and maybe put some tape on it. And it was fine. But I bought enough gear over 20 years. I was like, this stuff's getting worse. Why is it getting worse? It shouldn't get worse. And so I would go home from Taekwondo and I, this was 2010, you know, so the internet was definitely a thing, but mm-hmm. it was harder to find things. I was like, there's gotta be somebody making better, better gear. And after a year of, you know, just digging around once in a while, I said, fine, I'll make it myself. And it took years. It took years to scrape together the money and to borrow the money and to find the prototyping firm and to find the factory. And it was a variety of things coming together that uh, were not statistically likely. And you know, next thing I know, I'm in Mexico and, and we're designing some gear and, and of course it's all in Spanish and my Spanish isn't good enough for that. <laughs> and so the, one of the owners is, is bilingual and he's the go-between and I just see the look on the, the, I guess you'd call it the foreman's face. He's like, he wants me to do what? Because some of the things I was thrown out, I want this, I want this, I want this, were just so bizarre to them. And I spent New Year's Eve, 2012 into 2013 doing the first whistle kick website wow. because we had gear. And to this day, you know, aside from some of the content things that we do, like our podcast, that's still the thing that we were best known for. You know, we, we've done a number of things around uniforms and, and other training equipment, mm-hmm. but our gear is the thing that people recognize us best for. Yeah. And I, like I said, I've, I've looked through your, I've, I've never used the gear. Per, and honestly, in, until I heard about your show and researched it, I honestly never heard of it. Um, but well, I also, we're I also, kind of a, we're kind of a smell fish. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm <laughs> fully admit that you know. Um, but I also we, myself, I don't compete, so I haven't bought mm. gear in a long time either. <laughs> sure. So, but yeah, sure, I mean, it, it looks. I mean, and I've read reviews and stuff, and I mean, it looks like you make some damn good quality stuff. So that's impressive. One of the things that's always been important to me, and, and I. You know, if you talk to martial artists who go into business, whatever business it is, whether it's a martial arts school or something else, non-martial arts related, if you talk to them long enough, you can usually find their martial arts philosophy in how they run their business. My philosophy coming out of my training was it's got to be good. It's got to be a better value. You know, so we actually will aim for slightly higher price, but clearly better better product. Because that, you know, that, that separates us, you know, I don't want to compete on price competing on price. You know, we're, we're too small to do that. Mm -hmm. You compete on price. And as a little guy, you're going to lose. I mean, look, I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to name the competition, but they're all much bigger than we are. All of them, every one of them. (laughs) And so why do I want to try to do the thing that they do really well, you know, namely volume and great price when I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose money. So let's, how do we make a better mousetrap? And, and that's one of our core philosophies. If you see the logo on something, mm-hmm. it's going to be a great value. Nice. That's great. And, and I will definitely put a link out there on the show notes too. Cause that's, oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, gladly. And then I'm kind of curious about, you know, the, I was reading about the podcast, but then through reading about the podcast, I also read about the, is this like a video, the first cup with Jeremy, which came first, the yeah. first cup with Jeremy or the podcast? No, no. First cup. First cup is, is an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the podcast is kind of a, a straightforward story, similar to your own, you know, we wanted a podcast. And at the time there was one martial arts podcast 
And I wanted to work with them. I, excuse me, I wanted to sponsor them and, and it didn't work out, you know, not, not for any negative reasons. Like there wasn't like fighting or anything. Mm-hmm. It just, it wasn't what they were set up for. And so I wasn't going to do it because especially if you'd known me back in 2014, 15, I was still a pretty shy person. And the idea of me doing a podcast like that didn't make sense to me. Like, I'm, right. that's not, that's not what I'm going to do well with. And so I reached out to a friend and we had a couple meetings and, and he was all ready to go. And like, he was the guy, he was going to kill it. And then, and, and, and I, I, I say this jokingly and lovingly because he will laugh if he ever hears me say this, the idiot went and had a stroke and nearly died <laughs> at 45. Okay. So next thing I know, he's, he's, you know, in the hospital and ends up at his now wife's quite far away in Tennessee. And sorry, Jeremy, I'm not going to be able to host your show. Uh, fine. I'll do it myself. It's a little <laughs> bit of a recurring theme here. Right. And started much the way you did reaching out to my friends. One of the early bits of feedback we got was why are all these people Taekwondo people? Cause that's who I knew. <laughs> yep. It wasn't that I was making a Taekwondo podcast. It was that my best friends who trained were Taekwondo people. And one of the things he's actually really proud of saying this, the first guest, uh, gentleman, Houston Alexander, who lives a few hours south, we came up competing together, never against each other because he earned his black belt sooner than I did. But when I reached out to him, you know, it was, hey, I got this gear and I'd like you to be on this podcast. And he's like, I remember you. You know, it'd been 20 something years, Mm -hmm. but he remembered me. And it was from those relationships that I built and, and we just kind of move forward, move forward, move forward, grew, grew, grew. And the morning show was how do we get more video content? Because, you know, at the time we, I don't think we'd done any video and what's the number two search engine on the planet. It's YouTube. Mm-hmm. What do people want to see on YouTube videos? Not here's a still image with audio behind it, which to be frank is still what we do with most of our podcast episodes. <laughs> But I said, all right, when am I going to do this? I don't have any time. You know what? I have time first thing when I wake up. What if I sit on the couch in my bathrobe and drink coffee and talk about martial arts with people who happen to show up live on YouTube? Nice. Most ridiculous premise for a show I could come up with. (laughs) But I couldn't come up with anything better. So we did it. And now we're three years in, uh, weekdays, 6.30, first cup with Jeremy. And we average anywhere from, you know, five to 10 people live, you know, mm-hmm. not a big show. And then we get a few dozen who watch later on through the day or, or listen to it in, in audio form. You know, it's not the core of what we do, right? but let's face it. I don't have to do anything. I don't, we don't edit it. We do nothing, you know, shout out to Frank who, who handles the backend stuff, but it's a, it's a fun concept though. They all kind of, uh, they push me to, to step away from the bathroom. I actually wear real clothes now. Okay. And the, and the link for that, they just search for that on YouTube, First Cup with Jeremy. Yeah, okay. yeah, it shows up on our feed. Okay. Um, you know, it live streams to YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Okay. And then the the Whistlekick podcast. So you're at 645 episodes in. now. How, Something like that. How yeah. often do you do them? Is that, is that a separate a release schedule? It's two a week. Two a okay. week. Wow. Yeah, we do a, an interview show, you know, very much like, like what you do here. Mm-hmm. Uh, every Monday. And then Thursday, we usually have something that's topic driven and that floats around. That can be different things. You know, sometimes it's a, a Q and a episode people will write in uh, sometimes uh, like next week, we're going to have our, our latest how to fight episode where we bring on a guest who's been on the show and we watch a movie prior. And then we talk about how we would fight that main character, you know? So we did how to fight Jeff Speakman and, and how to fight, who else? I think I saw how the, to fight Van Seagal? Dam, Van Damme one the I saw that was a good one. Yeah, how to how to fight Van Damme in in kickboxer, you know, and those have been a ton of fun. They're a lot of work, but they're they're a yeah. ton of fun, you know. So we just, you know, playing around, doing different stuff. That's cool. And I mean, in, in a couple of years, you guys built yourself up to the top martial arts podcast out there. So congratulations on that. Well, thank I mean, you. Any list I look at, you guys are number one, which is <laughs> impressive. Well, thank you. Because um, I know when I first started talking about doing my show, like I said, I was like you. I, I st- I've been thinking about this for years. So when I looked, yeah, there was one or two out there. And, of course, now there's probably 20 or 30. Uh, you know, I, I waited too long also. <laughs> but there are there are a bunch. And to the point where I've never cared if we were, you know, the best, the top, whatever. I, I right. wanted to do our thing because I know it's good for our business. Mm-hmm. 
But I also didn't mind leveraging the resources we had to help others. And that's where um, actually the, the way you and I became initially connected was martialartspodcast.com, yep. which, you know, we're, we're doing some cool stuff with that. And it, um, shout out to Elke, who's uh, in charge over there. And, and that site went dormant for a little while till she came around because I, I just, I didn't have the resources to maintain it personally, mostly time. But the whole idea is, look, I believe that if you find a martial arts podcast you like, you are more likely to remain a martial artist. Right. I believe the world is better with more martial artists. I believe martial arts makes people better. And the whole business model for Whistlekick, it's not about a podcast or gear. It's about, it's broader than that. If people are training and training longer, we get more people training more of them are going to find some of the stuff that we do and we're more likely to make some money. So I don't, if somebody comes along and they find our podcast, they find martial arts radio and they're like, this is cool, but I found this other one. I like better go, go listen or watch that one. Mm -hmm. Because even though we may not get you, so to speak from our show, we're going to get you because you're going to train. And, and, you know, we're trying to make cool, different, innovative stuff there. Because when we started our show, no, there was nobody around to help me. I don't mind helping other people. And we've got, I mean, last I looked, there were close to two dozen shows over there. Yeah. And there are more that we're adding because there's so many, especially the BJJ shows. It seems like everybody who trains BJJ has a show with three of their friends and they sit down and drink beer and talk BJJ. <laughs> I actually just found a new martial arts podcast last night that one of my guests sent me that one of her students runs. That's a, and nice. so I'll have to, I'll have to send them to your website also Please <laughs> be on there. Please. But, uh, I haven't been able to listen to her show yet, but uh, it's, I just uh, subscribed last night and plan on listening later today. So, so kind of, Shifting gears a little bit. Yeah. Now, what advice would you give to someone who approaches you? They've never been in martial arts in their life. They're thinking of getting involved. Uh, what would you tell them to like look for an instructor, look for in at school? And what are some things you'd maybe tell them to avoid? Now, I don't know if you're intentionally asking this question because it it gets to a, pe- a massive pet peeve of mine, or if this is something that you ask everyone. I, I but... ask everyone. <laughs> <laughs> And and I am not familiar enough with your show to know how everyone answers this, but the common answer, if you talk to many martial art, mm-hmm. martial artists is they recommend style first. They're like, Oh, you should do this style. Oh, you're built this way. You should do this style. Or your goal is this, or my, you know, my instructor is the best. And it's all this. It's just, and, and I think that's the last question. Why do you want to train? Mm-hmm. What schools do you have available? Do you have time off? Like, can you go like logistically, can you get there or do they run classes when, you know, your kid's Boy Scout troop meets? And for me, it's initially a logistical question. Why? What meets that? Why? What about the when? And then what's left? For most people, there are like two or three options. Right. And one of the things that bums me out is when you flip that, when you get people thinking style first, because they talk to someone who, you know, has trained three months of or three years, or even 30 years of martial arts X, that person says, oh, well, you know, this is the best. You've got to do this. And there's a martial art right now that I I think very highly of, but sadly, a huge percentage of the practitioners have their blinders on it and they don't see value in anything else. And most people will probably know what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to name it. And if that person that is asking the question, what should I train? What should I do? If they become convinced that that martial art is what they should do and is really the only option, but they can't get there or there isn't a good school around them, they don't train because they've been convinced that that is the only thing and anything else is a a false choice, a wrong choice. And I think that that's such, uh, I think that's so foolish. Most martial artists would agree that martial arts makes people better. Mm -hmm. So why not have them training in something that isn't even, that isn't, quote unquote, the best thing for them, but it's better than nothing. Agree 100%. And the whole reason I added that question in is because myself being in martial arts for almost 40 years, I get asked that question probably on a weekly basis, like a, a coworker or a friend of a friend. Like, hey, you do this. What do you recommend? And it's so I'm like, I wonder what other people would say, because <laughs> I know what I've pretty much said for, you know, and, and my answer, I'm sure, has changed over the years. And, and luckily, I'm in an area myself where we have 30 plus martial arts schools to pick oh, from. Cool. Yeah, so I'll, and I tell people, go to as many as you can, watch them, talk to the instructor, meet people, talk to other students. But, you know, I've also had people call me from other towns, and I'm like, well, you have one school in your town, so. 
yeah. not, much, not much of an option. Go try it. If you don't like it, you're kind of out of luck other than virtual lessons. But so, you know, that depends too what you have in your area. But yeah, it's, it's, it, it's fun. I, at first I thought like my first four guests, I think gave like the same answer. I'm like, oh, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to pull this question. Then I started getting a few different ones, people, you know, different <laughs> stuff. And one person that just said, just pick the one that's closest. Cause that's, what's going to, that's, what's going to work best. I'm like, oh, well, maybe that, that's a huge, <clears throat> a huge piece. Yeah. It's a huge piece. Yep. One of the things that I will tell people that not, I, I don't hear everyone say, and we talk about this on the show periodically, mm-hmm. we've done a few episodes for non-martial artists to help them and for martial artists making these recommendations. I think it's important to watch. Mm-hmm. Every martial arts school on the planet wants you to come and train first. I'm an advocate of watching first because there are things that you're going to see, especially if you're new to training and you get out on the floor, you're nervous, maybe you're even afraid, and you're not going to get the same perspective that you will sitting on the side. And most of the time, if I join a school, unless I have prior knowledge of the instructor, which most of the time now I do, I sit and I watch. I want to, if I can't stomach sitting an hour watching what they're doing, I'm probably not going to enjoy training there. 100%. And like you said, most, I don't know if I'd say all, but I'd say 99.9% of schools will let you watch. I've I've encountered Mm -hmm. one in my life when I lived in California in 96, 97, that Flat out said, "Oh, what we what we teach is too secretive. We don't allow com- We don't and allow that's spectators." A red flag. I, I know. I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> it, it was, and it was a ninja school, so that should tell you a lot, actually. Back then, but, <laughs> yeah, kind of funny, but yeah, and 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 also, I also think. I think every school should offer some kind of free intro, whether it's one, one lesson or one week, or, you know, I think a lot of schools offer two free weeks or something. And if you're good at what you do, whether it's martial arts or something else, you give away some of what you do, because if you're not getting people to sign up after that, if you have to lock them in before they try it, you're probably not that good at what you do. And that's not just martial arts. You know, I, you know, my, my day job uh, in addition to whistle kick, I, I'm a, a business and marketing consultant. And I tell people, everybody gets a free hour wow. because most of the time they leave that free hour going, holy cow, this guy's got ideas and thoughts and maybe I should pay him for more of them in the future. <laughs> and that's been my best marketing strategy. That's smart. So now you primarily studied traditional martial arts most of your life and you, mm-hmm. you got into competition. So what are your thoughts on on MMA and the UFC? And, and are you a fan? <laughs> Oh, all right. Are you going to publish my address with this? Okay. It's not my show. I can, I can be a little more direct here. Mm-hmm. The UFC specifically, because I, there is a difference between the UFC and mixed martial arts overall. Yes. I love mixed martial arts. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. I see the value in the mindset. I have friends who are pro fighters. I go, I love watching amateur MMA because it is, it, it is Budo, right? It is that mm-hmm. spirit of Budo. They beat the tar out of each other and then they hug at the end because they're so thankful that they had the opportunity to get better with someone else, right? It's sparring to the 10th, right? It's great. And I love that attitude. But what you see in the UFC, what's changed over the years is that in order to get dollars, they have leaned into the characterization of their fighters. And we are now at a point where the most recognizable mixed martial artist on the planet is an absolutely horrible and terrible person. (laughs) I would not let him in my house, let alone train with him. And I do not believe that that represents martial arts. Now, anyone who trains says, oh, well, yeah, it's MMA. It's pro MMA. That's not the same as traditional martial arts. Well, I'll tell you what, In the line of work that I'm in, when I talk to people who are not actively involved in martial arts, when I tell them about whistle kick and a lot of what we've, we've done over the years has been around gaining funding, et cetera, the percentage of people who, when I say martial arts, instantly equate that to MMA. If they're making that mental connection, are they likely, if they know the UFC, if the majority of what they see of mixed martial arts is the tomfoolery, there's a, there's a non-expletive. There you go. If it is that, do you think they are more or less likely to enroll their kid in the local Taekwondo or karate program? Great point. I, I would argue less. Yeah. So the point at which I care and I will push back on MMA, specifically the UFC, is when it starts to mess with the thing that I mentioned earlier is incredibly important to me and is our whole reason for being to get people into and keep them in traditional martial arts. Yeah. 
And I, I used to, the same thing. I used to love the UFC. I used to never miss it. I used to judge pro MMA too. So I'd, I'd never miss a UFC event. And I can honestly say I haven't watched one in three years. <laughs> so it's, it's, the, it's, it's changed. I, I did a short video. We're, we're all over the place. You know, I, I've got a, a small TikTok account because that's where doing these really short kind of personal videos made mm-hmm. sense. And I started getting tagged in and seeing the hashtag martial arts all over these clips uh, from a couple weeks ago of Conor McGregor, Machine Gun Kelly. And I went, hold on, there's nothing to do with martial arts in this. You know, we're, we, maybe we're looking at a, a, an upcoming, you know, Logan, Jake Paul pro fight kind of thing. That's fine. It's even fine that people are tagging me in it. But the moment you call that martial arts and the moment that you call Conor McGregor is a, an incredibly skilled fighter. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a remarkable fighter. I will not take that away from him. Would not want to step in the ring with that guy. He would decimate. He would decimate me with one hand. He's not a martial artist. By my definition, he's not a martial artist because my definition of martial arts involves personal growth. He's a slimier person now than he was when he started. He's regressed. That's not martial arts. 100%. I agree. All right. If you had to pick one martial artist to put at the top of your list for someone you truly admire, whether it's someone you've trained with, you've met, you've talked to, or someone you just heard of oh, or read about. You make me pick one. I, honestly, none of my guests have ever just picked one. I probably, so if you need to pick two or three, that's fine. But yeah, if, the, you, the if one, you have one. The, the one, so I'm, I'm going to pick one, but I'm going to throw in a couple honorable mentions. Okay. If, if you'll allow me. Perfect. The one, the one that I've got to put at the top is Bill Wallace. And nice. I would not have done so prior to meeting him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, a, he's a wonderful martial artist. He's a gifted instructor, incredible fighter. I mean, his, his record speaks for itself. If anybody doesn't know Bill Superfoot Wallace, uh, you really owe it to yourself to do a little bit of research on him. Yes. But what the reason I put Bill at the top is because he lives that martial arts ethos 24 hours a day. He found his gift. I believe everybody in the world has one thing that they can do better than anybody else. Most of us never find it because we don't spend enough time trying new things. Bill found his thing very, very early and you can see it. You can see it in his old fight tapes. You can see it if you go to a seminar with him and you can see it if you sit down and just have a conversation with him. The number of people he has inspired to train, kept training, helped grow, including myself, is off the charts and probably, I mean, the, the guy's in his mid seventies and he's still doing seminars. Let's remember that. Yeah, He's been doing this for 50 years, like off the hook. Great. Show me somebody else who's done that. Show me somebody else who's touched that many martial artists over the course of their career. Now the, now my, my kind of honorable mention, my number two has done something very similar, but in a slightly different way. And that's Fumio Demura. Oh, Yes. If you don't know the backstory of Karate Kid and how Miyagi was modeled on Fumio, if you haven't watched the real Miyagi, I think it's on Netflix, or at least it was, it's an awesome documentary. And if the Karate Kid had any influence on you as a martial artist, as as it did me, you owe it to yourself to watch that. I was incredibly lucky. Uh, We we did an episode on... Fumio Demer as a profile because I, I thought, you know, I was told we would never get him. He was, he was older. He wasn't feeling well, et cetera. And next thing I know, the profile episode was put up on the real Miyagi movie Facebook page. And I was like, Oh, oh. And, I, and I reached out and I said, can, if it, there's ever an opportunity, I'd, I'd love to talk to Demer sensei. And they went, what's your email address? And an hour later I had an email from him. Yep. And so in similar way that, that Bill Wallace Grandmaster Wallace. I don't want people to think that that I don't respect his rank or title. Right. When when we chat, he's he's just Bill, and that's at his designation. And that's not just for me. He's he's an incredibly humble guy. I I found the same things in speaking with Demura Sensei that his training, his approach to life is the same way he approaches his everything. His martial arts and his non martial arts is still martial arts. And so I, I guess I guess we'll go with those two. I could name plenty of other people, but those two, I think, have had more impact on the martial arts, at least in the Western world, mm-hmm. than anybody else I can point to. Oh, but Chuck Norris. Chuck <laughs> Norris has had a lot of impact. Yes. But I don't know how many people he's gotten to train. Right. Two phenomenal answers. And honestly, if I remember correctly, through 30 episodes, 
I don't think either of those two has ever been mentioned. So that's always ah, good. Always yes. good when we get new names. And and Mr. Demera actually he he said yes. I sent an email and I'm, oh, I'm just, I'm I, just I, I'm waiting to schedule. Yes. I'm keeping my fingers crossed we can make it work. So I, that was one kind of same thing. I was shocked when he responded to my email personally. I'm like, oh wow. <laughs> I was so overcome with joy at the end yep. that I just, I, I, my eyes started leaking. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I just sat down. It wasn't like, I wasn't crying cause I was sad. I wasn't crying. Like I just, I take someone that you've looked up to for decades. Mm-hmm. Everyone told you it would not happen. You wouldn't get to talk to them. And then you get to talk to them yeah. and they're even more amazing to talk to than you thought. Yeah. Yeah. I had my, my first one like that was actually, I think episode number six, my, my interview with James DeMille. Um, who just, and honestly, I just found out two weeks ago, he passed away. Um, I didn't, I didn't know what I was in the middle of interviewing someone else. And he had mentioned some martial artists we lost. And he goes, and we just lost James DeMille in August. I'm like, what? Mm. So actually thinking back, I may, (laughs) I may be his last interview. Yeah. So yeah, phenomenal interview. (laughs) And and I'm glad that you were able to capture it. Right. Like, like this is, this is a great example of where I can't do it all. We can't do it all. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I want other people doing martial arts podcasts and capturing these stories because everyone's going to die. Yeah. And the best martial artists, let's face it, they suck at telling their stories and chronicling things. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll have a few people that they train with and they're like, yeah, you know, I saw him do that 20 years ago. He doesn't like when I talk about it, you know, and so those stories die with them. You know, we've had uh, sadly three of our past guests have, have passed away. One, um, there, there was one that about a month ago, he passed of, of, uh, of COVID. And, you know, I mentioned Jun Ri who passed away not too mm-hmm. long after I got to speak with him. And, um, you know, one, one other gentleman, it was just every time somebody passes away that we've had on the show, I don't know if you had the same experience, their students will write to us and say, I'm really glad he did this Yep. because now I can go back and I can listen to him, her, them, whenever I want. And I'm only 30 episodes in and I've already had two. Over your years in the martial arts, is there a philosophy you've learned that goes to the top of your list? One philosophy that you keep coming back to that's really important to you? There are only so many ways the human body can move, and only some of them make sense through the lens of combat. Very cool. And I'm certainly not the first person to come up with this. Mm -hmm. I've heard other people say it in slightly different ways. I don't know that I came to it on my own, but I, I think I did. And it came as a result of watching the infighting. This style is better than this. Taekwondo is stupid. And, and I don't think Taekwondo is stupid. Just any Taekwondo practitioners out there. I, I, I hold rank in Taekwondo, so stop. And people say, oh, well, you know, that that's not an effective art. Well, why not? It's got the same concept of punching and, and kicking that this other art does and, and, and this does. So why would, why would a punch, you know, a, a straight punch exists in every martial arts style, right? So... Doesn't that speak to something that's a little more central? I've also heard the philosophy, uh, you've probably heard this too, or rather the the metaphor, martial arts being like a mountain. The closer to the top you get, the easier it is to see the similarities and see around and see that, you know, you're you're all closer than you were at the bottom. And I think that that's so true. And I think that if, if more people can embrace that, that we don't have the infighting, which frankly keeps people from training. Mm -hmm. And I think that that leads to more fun, better learning, and more rapid advancement of the martial arts. See, that's probably my favorite question to ask because that is one I've never gotten the same answer on from anybody. Mm, (laughs) So that's one of my favorite questions. But kind of a few fun ones to to wrap it up. Yeah. Do you have a favorite martial arts book? (sighs) A Killing Art is is up there. Yep. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, I've I've. I've read a bunch, you know, I am, I'm not a huge reader, which is ironic because I, I, I write books. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm probably going to go with a killing art because it's, it's historical and it's entertaining. Right. Like it, it's, I mean, you've, you've read it. I don't know how many of your listeners have read it, but it's an enjoyable read. It's exciting. It's not. And then in 1925, <laughs> This person did this thing, which, you know, most histories of martial arts are, are that. Right. That's probably in my top three also. So it's, it's one of my favorite books. But all right. Now, you're a kid of the 80s like me. So hopefully you'll have an answer for this one. Favorite martial arts video game. Oh, God, there's so many. Okay. <laughs> so 
I've got, and it's it's still. Hold on, I'm going to open the closet because I think it's still here, and I want to make sure I get the name right. Uh, can I find it? Can I find it? No, it's hiding. Okay, my mother sent this to me a couple of years ago. She found it cleaning out piles. My first computer, we had this game that we found in like the bargain bin at Walmart. So it was already like 10 years old at that mm-hmm. point. And it was called like Budokan. And it was the slowest game you could ever imagine. It was basically, if you ever played Kung Fu on the NES, mm-hmm. it was similar to that, but like half the speed. It just, it was abysmal to play. Sounds familiar. Kung Fu was a lot of fun. All the Ninja Turtles games were fun. Mortal Kombat, I think, really changed the world of fighting games. And the one other one, I've never bumped into anybody else who's ever played this. The first robot fighting game I was ever familiar with was called One Must Fall. I think technically One Must Fall, like 2097 or something. Hmm. And that was on computer. I had that on the computer as well. And that was a really incredible game, especially for the time. I mean, they were doing stuff. There were there were combo moves in there that like no other game had back then. It was, it was pretty sweet. Yeah, I think so my, should bring that my first one was on a Commodore 64. That was my computer. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so a lot of the games on there were made by third party developers. So they were yep. ripoffs of other games. So they didn't like, you know, I, I actually had a game called Bruce Lee that probably had no <laughs> right to use the name and everything like that. And, you know, I, I actually had one called Kung Fu that wasn't the real Kung Fu game. And yeah, so but I, I, I actually went on, on YouTube and found that old Bruce Lee game <laughs> just to see the graphics and stuff. It was very entertaining. So <laughs> nice. nice. All right. Favorite martial arts TV show. What was the one? It wasn't around long with Sammo Hung. Oh, martial law. Season. Yeah. That was the one. Yep, that's actually that was the one, on one of the local channels here. They replay episodes. So is I, it really? I still, oh, that's I still cool. watch it. <laughs> so growing up, you know, I grew up in the woods of Maine. We didn't have cable and there wasn't much coming on martial arts wise. And my mother liked to watch things like MASH and Love Boat mm-hmm. and, you know, shows that as a, a young boy, I had zero interest in. And that was one of the few shows that we would watch together. If I remember correctly, it was on Saturday nights, either right before or right after the district with Craig T. Nelson. Wow. Yeah. You're, you're going deep on that, but that sounds, that sounds familiar. That sounds right. I know it it was Saturday night and I know I used to watch that show also. So I'm pretty sure they were back to back. (laughs) What I liked about that show is the choreography and that, you know, Sam Hung is horribly underrated in part because of who he came out of the, the, um, was the Hong Kong opera school, whatever. Yeah, the Jackie okay. Chan one, yeah. You know, Jackie Chan and who was the third? There were three of them that came out at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. the choreography was great. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't sped up. It wasn't super fast. It wasn't flashy. It was effective. And I remember watching that going, oh, that would work. Oh, that would work. And I found that really cool. So did you like the episodes better with or without Arsenio Hall? <laughs> That's who the other person in there was. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're going back. Your memory for this stuff's better than mine, man. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't Our, mind him on that show. I don't know why. But he's he, he, such he's such a riot. Yeah. See, and I, I'm kind of like you. I, I, some of my favorite martial arts TV shows are the ones that didn't last, like one or two seasons. Like my yeah. first one I remember is Sidekicks with Ernie Reyes Jr. Yep. As yep. a kid. Watch that. That was and a then, great do show. you remember Street Justice with Carl no. Weathers and Brian Genesee? So it actually had, no. yeah, Carl Weathers from Rocky. And Brian Genesee, who's a expert in Hungar Kung Fu, and it was it was actually kind of like I think why I liked it. It was like the grown up version of Sidekicks. Carl mm. Weathers was a cop, and this Brian Genesee was this young kid who he had saved in like Vietnam, and he grew up and tracked him down, and he kind of like helped him solve crimes as he was like a twenty year old kid. So it was kind of like the adult version of Sidekicks. I think is why I enjoyed it. But oh, nice, yeah, oh, nice. I'll have to find that. And yeah, when it comes to that, a lot of my, my memory is <laughs> I love <laughs> and, and the Master was another one. I think it was the one season, the 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 Ninja Show from the early eighties with uh, Tim Timothy Van Patten and and Lee Van Cleef. So yeah, cool. and and um, what's her face was in the in the very first episode. Oh, I can't. Demi Moore was in the pilot of that show. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I have that on DVD somewhere. But all right, final one. Favorite martial arts movie. This one's easy for me. Crouching Tiger. Really? Okay. Yeah. Nice. That one hasn't been given Cr- yet. I like that. Crouching answer. Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because of what it was able to do. Mm-hmm. If you look at martial arts movies before and after, you can see the change. Oh yeah. We took a movie that had no English. It was subtitled. It was definitely Eastern in production style and everything. And they brought it here and people watched it and it made money. It's an exciting story. It's a, maybe not a relatable story, but it's a fun story. 
and the characters are great. The acting is good. The choreography, you know, some people dislike it because it's not realistic. So what? Mm -hmm. It's a great story. And the choreography, the fight scenes add to the story. They're not separate. That's one of my... One of my things about a lot of the older martial arts stuff is the conversation, the plot is just filler between fight scenes and they're so disconnected. And I don't like that. It was one of the things I liked about Into the Badlands was right. they, they connected. Uh, it's one of the things I love about Warrior is it, it all connects. It's it's a single experience as opposed to story, 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 fight, story, 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 fight, right? Nice. I, and I just thought of one more question that I, I need to add to my list because I keep forgetting to ask people this, but <laughs> kind of on the movie or even TV shows, is there one that you think has had the most realistic martial arts fight scene? There's nothing from TV that I'm going to feel confident right. pulling from. Yeah, I think you have to go movie on this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, this is where everybody's saying John w- John Wick and The Raid and... You know, I, I think those work as options, but those, you know, I don't like violence. I don't yeah. like the really gory, violent action style. And, and maybe that's why I like something like Crouching Tiger, because, you know, it, it's there's there's fantasy in there. And I can appreciate the martial arts skill and the fight scenes without, you know, watching someone's disfigured face at the end of the fight. Right. See, I think my, so, the first two I think of when I think of a realistic fight scene in a movie is the first Born Identity I think there's mm. some really good realistic fights in that and perfect weapon. I always go back to that one too, as yeah. far as how it makes martial arts look real. <laughs> I, I, I think perfect weapon is a wonderful example because if you know anything about Jeff Speakman, if you mm-hmm. know anything about his skill, you know that everything in that film is plausible. Yes. 100%. So I, I, I think, I think I'll agree with that. I'm not saying I couldn't come up with something <laughs> better given enough time, but it's a, it's a good enough answer. I'll put my name on it. There we go. Cool. Well, Jeremy, I just want to thank you, man. This has been so much fun. I, lo- I loved hearing oh, your okay. story and learning about everything you're involved in. And, and this has been a blast. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of, and I'll put links for anything you want me to on the show notes like for all, all your websites and any of your stuff, even your IT consulting. If you want me to, I'll throw that out there and <laughs> you know, anything I can do for that. But I just, once again, I, I, I appreciate your time and it's, it's been a blast. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.